Hey friends, this is Josh Blair, and I'm the pastor of Central Valley Church, and this is our podcast. My prayer for the message you hear today, that it will inspire you and encourage you to walk closer with Jesus this week. If you want to stay connected with us, please check us out at CVC Madera, both on Facebook and Instagram. And you can check out our YouTube channel, Central Valley Church. Thank you for your time. So we've been reading through the Bible, and I think we, we just celebrated uh, I post, we did a post on our, our Instagram that it was 300 days that we were already in the Word of God, and now we're, we're past that. 300 days in the Word of God, and now we're 304 days into it. It's phenomenal. If, you're, if you've been reading the Bible, now 300 consecutive days in the Word of God, your lives are being transformed. Your mind, the way you think, the way you act, the way you respond to situations are being transformed by the washing of the water of the Word of God over your life, and so I continue, uh, encourage you to to be a part of that. And one thing that God has really been stirring in my heart, uh, especially over this church, something that I've spoken about before, but I've been really praying for a move of God and for revival to spark uh, in our lives and in our church and in our community. We need Jesus to transform us. We need, we need, we need freedom. And there's people that are bound, they're addicted, they're broken. And I've been praying God would pour out his spirit in these times and there, there would just be an awakening across our entire community and families would be restored and people's hearts would turn back to Jesus. And that's something I've been praying for. And if you remember, I think last time I spoke about revival, I had mentioned that the first sign of revival is personal evangelism. You beginning to share about what God's been doing in your life with other people. You can't hold it in anymore. There's an excitement, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a joy that overflows in you, and you just can't help but share it with other people. That's a first sign that revival is happening. And I'm believing that God is wanting to speak to us today about, about where revival wants to start and how our hearts need to be conditioned towards those who don't know Jesus. I believe that God is wanting to do a work in us today to have a, a, a heart shift towards those who are far from God, that we would long for them to be close to God. And not just people that we know, but people that we don't know as well. God is wanting to do a work in us. And I believe for that to happen, for that, that heart to be developed in us, we have to have a God perspective on how he views those who are outside of his family. If we, don't have, uh, if we don't view people who are far from God the way that God views them, then we're not going to have the heart of God towards those who are outside of his family. Would you agree with that? So we need to have a perspective uh, of those, how does God see those who are outside of his family and how should that influence how we see them. And as we are reading through, and this is something that I've been praying over, and as we've been reading through the Bible, we've come across Jesus' teaching on parables speaking about these things. And so that's where we're going to camp today. We're going to be looking at the parables that Jesus speaks out of Luke chapter 15 and part of 16. That's what we're going to be looking at. And this morning, I want to answer this question. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. If you have a YouVersion Bible app open uh, on a smart phone or device, you can follow along there, YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version. If you need to find us, you can click on More and then Events, and you'll find Central Valley Church there. You can follow along there. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. The question is, what are the plans and purposes of God for those who do not know him? What are the plans and purposes of God for those who don't know him? And what is our responsibility, both corporately and individually, to see his will done? So what is his plan and purpose for those who are outside of his family? 
And then what is our responsibility, both our as in the church and ours as in individually, to see his will done? This is what we're going to answer today. This is what I believe God is wanting to speak to us today. And so that's where we're going to find the answers to these questions. It's found in Luke chapter 15. You have your Bibles. You can turn there. As you're turning, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters, Lord, and worship you for who you are. We know that there is a powerful move of your spirit when, you, when the brothers and sisters of Christ come together and worship you. Lord, you said in your word where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are in our midst. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're in our midst right now. And we ask that, that you would open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you have in store for us. That God, that this would not just be another Sunday message, another word that we take in and don't, uh, don't apply, but this would be a word that we apply to our hearts, that we live off of, that, it, that shifts the way we live our lives and the way we see, God, from this day forward. We love you, God. Let it be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, starting in... Chapter 15, in the very first verse, in, in chapter 15, there are three parables that Jesus tells about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son, or you could call it the lost son. And before he begins to tell these parables, the reason why he tells these parables is found in the context of the first two verses as he's sitting here. And it says in, in verse 1, if you'll follow along, Chapter 15, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That those who were far from God began to draw near to Jesus because he had something that no one else did. I think it's an odd thing when sinners and people who are far from God but have a longing for it, they don't go to those who have the answer because perhaps they're a little too religious they're a little too standoffish. They're a little too staunch in the way they live their life. I think that believers should be attractive to those who are not believers in a way that they have something that they don't have. I'm not saying that they're like, hey, let's go drinking and hang out and go to the strip club. That should be no, right? Hold on. That should be no, right? Okay, thank you. That was a little bit. Some people were like, well, should that be no? Okay. There should be some division there, but there should be something that draws, right? So tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus. If we want to be like Jesus, there should be something attractive about us. Let's continue. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Who, who grumbled? The religious people. Oh, can't believe this. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Why is eating with them a big deal? I mean, it's a big deal now if you sit down, you invite somebody to your table, invite somebody into your home, right? But it was even greater back then because it took so much time to prep, right? They had to go kill the animal. They couldn't go to Walmart, right? They couldn't go to the, 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 the supermarket and, and grab the food and throw something together, pop it in the microwave. It took time. It took, it took energy. It took resources for them to sit down and have a meal. They would have to talk with one another. They couldn't look at their iPhones during dinner. They actually had to converse. They had to talk about their lives, their families, what's going on. So it took a lot of investment, hours of investment to have someone sit down with you and eat. And they're saying, this Jesus is spending so much time with sinners and they want to be with them. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. So they're complaining because Jesus was seen as a holy man, a teacher. And surely he, was, he would follow the purity rituals 
that were established in Judaism, essentially those who, who set them up, the religious leaders who said, we have to fence in the, the law with other laws and other rituals, and so you can't sit with these people because they believed the unholy would taint the holy and make it also unholy. Right? We saw that as they said, you know, when, when God was establishing how the, the tent of meeting would be set up and those who could touch things and those who could not touch things. And that was the rule. Like if something unholy touched something that was holy, it became unholy too. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. When the unholy touches him who is holy, he does not become unholy. That which is, touches the holy becomes holy as well. See, Jesus is not concerned with your unholiness as, a, as something that will... That will mess up his holiness. He's saying, draw close to me, touch me, and watch that very thing, that, that infirmity, that unholiness flee from you because my holiness bleeds from me. It pours out. We see that in the story where Jesus has the woman touch the hem of his garment and she's healed, right? When the unholy touches him who is holy, that thing becomes holy as well. But in the opinion of the religious leaders, hanging with the unholy would make him unholy. But Jesus responds to their grumbling with these parables. And he wants to counter the way they have been thinking, saying the way you think is all wrong. Because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and can I also say some of us who are in the church now, believe that our work, that our effort, that our righteousness gets God's attention. But Jesus tells these parables to turn that thinking on its head. We think it's our work that makes God want us. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you three parables to explain to you why God wants you. So he begins with the first one, starting in verse 3, and I'll read it very quickly. He told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep... Ooh, that's familiar. Sounds like we sang a song about this. If he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost... Until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying with them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Here's a couple of things that I want to highlight. And don't skip ahead on reading, okay? This does not exist yet. Don't look at these things. Okay, we're looking at just the first column. What we find in this first parable about the lost sheep, it highlights to us the priority is on the lost, not those who are already found. Right? Something my dad had already said. Those who are already in the fold are safe and secure. God puts the priority on those who are outside of his family first. Why? Because he understands eternity far greater than we do. And he's saying, look, they are so valuable to me. They are, they are top priority to me because we got to save them out of the fire. Right? Just so much as if there's, a, if there's a house burning, but our house is safe, we don't run into our own house and start collecting our own things first because we're afraid Oh, what if the fire comes across here and now... No, we think, I, if there's people in there, we got to get them out first. That house and those people are priority first. God sees the loss that way too. He sees them on a, 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 on a road or a path leading to destruction. He says, I'll do whatever it takes to go get them. The first 
story, the first parable, is that the priority is on the lost and that the shepherd goes looking. The shepherd goes looking. The shepherd does not sit in, in his safe sheepfold and say, if the sheep really, really care, it'll find its way back home. He goes looking. Right? This is why Jesus says in Matthew 28, as he's, as he's talking to his disciples before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he says, go. Go and make disciples. I am sending you out to find the lost. The priority is in going. You, you have to move and go do something. God is the one who is seeking. This is why we see Jesus being sent from the Father. He steps out of heaven to pursue those who are lost and far from him. So Jesus says the priority is on the lost, and we're going to be looking for them. And then the beauty of it is it says when he finds it, he throws the sheep on his shoulder, and he carries it until it's safe at home. I think sometimes the way that we do evangelism, we go out, we, we tell people, you need Jesus. We might have some people who say yes, and then all of a sudden we wipe our heads and say, our job is done. And God says, they're not safe yet. Carry them. Teach them. Disciple them. Help them find security and safety in me. So the story shows the shepherd carrying the sheep all the way home, rejoicing until they're find safe and secure. And then we see the energy and the resources used to find the lost sheep. There's, there's something invested. There's time invested. There's resources invested finding the lost. Then Jesus, looking at the, then begins to tell a, a next, the, the, the parable right after that. In verse 8 it says, And what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Notice the word rejoice is in both of these, uh, both of these parables. right? And a party is thrown. Some of you think God is like, he's just staunchy, you know, like, God knows how to party, man. So, be, See, your life in sin, when you thought you were partying, that's nothing compared to what God, the party that God throws in heaven. God knows how to party. God knows how to do it right. God knows how to rejoice. God knows how to celebrate. And it says that every time one who is far from God draws close to God, heaven erupts in a party, man. See, God is emotional towards people. God is not... Uh, just a logical being or some type of uh, a being that works robotically, calculating and using the algorithms of what percentage of those are going to come to him and which aren't, and just calculating, okay, this is just, I should have these numbers in, and using the, what is that, an abacus? Do you remember, anybody remember those? We never use them, okay? I'm just saying no one should. If you said yes, you're dating yourself. <clears throat> so... Uh, God's not up there just counting like how many souls are expected and like, okay, well, like we met our quota this month, right? God is emotional towards people. He loves people. He desires people to come into the family. His will towards people is based on love and it's expressed in emotion and excitement and joy because he loves the lost. And when they're found, he throws a party. Now, what's the difference between these two parables? See, at a base level, they're saying the same thing. The, the lost 
our priority. It's, it's crucial that we search for them. But the second parable stresses a little bit more about seeking than the first parable. The first parable says the, the shepherd went out and found it and brought it home. The second parable said she lost this coin and she diligently began to seek. She turned her house upside down to find this coin. There was a the, the seek diligently until it's found. That's this, the, this idea of determination or commitment until what she has lost is found. And this silver coin is great, of great value. It's not like you lost a nickel in your couch, right, or a quarter in your car between the seats. I mean, sometimes those are like, oh, man, I wish I had a quarter. But it's not that kind of thing, right, because I want that little uh, gumball uh, outside of Perkos. That's not what it's talking about. Right? It's greater value than that. This value of this of silver coin is as if you had lost your entire paycheck for the month and you have no savings. You're like, y'all, we need to find this check. Like, flip the couch upside down, empty your pockets. Maybe, I don't know, what have you been doing with your life? I don't know, is my check, did you take it? You know, whatever it is, let's find this. Like, empty out the pillowcases, empty out the, the washing machine, whatever. we got to find this, that kind of diligently seeking. And I'm going to keep looking. I'm going to be determined. I'm going to be committed until I find this. I'm not stopping. I'm not sleeping until I find this coin. This is the type of uh, determination that Jesus is pointing to, to the woman who is turning her house upside down. It demonstrates the value of what is lost in this parable. In the first parable, you're like, well, you got 99 other ones. Why are you going to spend that time looking for one, right? So, so there's the value of the one, but it's also saying there's so much great value on this that if just losing one is so valuable and so important, it demonstrates the worth of the thing that has been lost. It isn't some half-hearted attempt to find just a, a, some change that you had lost or misplacing something that had no value. See, the reason why Jesus told this parable to, to the Pharisees because they looked at sinners and those who were uh, outside of God's family as worthless and as if they had no value at all. They did not rate them high on the social scale. Those that had leprosy, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, they said these are dogs, they're worse than dogs. We don't care about them, we, want, we don't want to associate with them. They have no value to us or to society and they would also attribute that as if they had no value to God. This is how they taught. This is how they, they preached. And so they would tell people, if you really want God's attention, you have to live like us. You've got to follow our rules. You've got to do everything that we say. Then you'll have value. And Jesus says that's not it at all. That's not how it works. He says you, you put lesser value on these people because you see their impurity. And you say that they're worthless. And you treat them worthless. But here's a truth that I want you to remember. Sin cannot diminish your value or the image of God in your life. Sin cannot diminish the value that God has put on you. Sin is powerful, but it's not that powerful to remove your worth. See, some people think, yeah, I've sinned, I've messed up, I'm worthless. I've even said it in my own life. God, I can't believe I did this. God... What am I? I'm worthless. I'm a dog. I don't deserve anything. And that's what the enemy wants to remind you, wants to tell you. You're worthless because you've sinned. You've messed up. You've walked away from God or you don't have a relationship with God. You're worthless. But sin cannot take away the image of God in your life. And it cannot diminish your worth according to him. If it could, 
Jesus would not have come for us. Because we were already his enemies, stuck in sin, trapped in bondage, lost in darkness, and he still said, I'm coming. So what does that tell us? Sin does not remove our worth. We are still worth something to Jesus. That's why he paid his all for us. He gave it all for us. See, if our, sin, if, our, if our worth had been diminished because of sin, Jesus would not have come. See, the, the thing is, we get mixed up. We think that it's something that we do that makes us valuable. No, we're not valuable because of what we do. We're valuable because God loves us. His love gives us value. His love gives us worth. It's not the other way around. It's not your worth that makes God love you. It's God's love for you that gives you worth and value. And nothing can take that away. Nothing can remove the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And yet, and remember, Jesus is talking to the religious people here first. He's saying, you treat the ungodly like they have no value, and that there have been some in the church that treat people who are ungodly or living in ungodly lifestyles or situations or living in sin, and we treat them as if they have less value. And Jesus is wanting to remind us that the way that you see those who are far from me should be the way that I see them, of great value and worth. See, God's will, his desire towards the lost reveals that they are people of immense value, not only for eternity, but right here and now. Here and now, those who are far from God, God still says they have tremendous value and tremendous worth. So I wonder, how far would we go to recover, to redeem, to restore something of great value that's been lost? How much of our resources, our time, our energy, our money, our talent would we invest See, this woman in the parable of the lost coin invested a lot of her time, a lot of her energy to find this coin of great value. Finally, the last parable that Jesus tells is the, the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. And in this parable, there's a lot of stories that we can talk about. There's a lot of connections that we can find with the son. But I want to focus on the reaction and the, 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 the action of the father in this parable because at the, at the beginning of this parable, he has, there's a father with two sons. One is a faithful son who listens to his father, does everything his father says. And there's another son who comes to his father and says, look, I want my inheritance now. And I want to live the way I want to live. Essentially saying, I wish you were dead so that I could get my inheritance now. He tells his father, I don't want anything to do with you. I just want the money you owe me. And I'm going to go live my life the way I want to live it. The Bible says that he goes into a faraway land and he just squanders it. He spends it on parting, a lavish lifestyle, on women, on whatever he can. And eventually he runs out of money. And this Jewish boy has to go work for a pig farmer, which if you know that culture, they couldn't even uh, look at pigs or be close to pigs, couldn't touch them. They were, they were unclean animals. And yet now he's then there feeding them, the very thing he's not even supposed to be around or touch. And it says that he's starving so much that he longs to eat the slop that the pigs are eating. And he finally comes to his senses and he says, how much, uh, how, how good do even the servants in my father's house have it? They're, they have food on their table. They have clothes on their back. And I'm here. 
living with the pigs, longing to eat their trash. And he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back to my father and beg just to be a servant. And starting in verse 20, it says he rose, came to his father. But here's what's beautiful. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. Here's something that we miss, and I blame uh, children's Bibles for this. The picture we always draw of this, uh, this parable is that the, the, the father lived in some distant area outside uh, of away from all these people, and he had rolling hills up to his house, and he could stand on the top, and he could see because of all the rolling hills, it's wide open, and there was no one else around. Then he saw his son and ran, but that's not how it was. His home was in a village with other people. This is the great compassion of the father. When he saw his son wanting to come back, he didn't wait to have to have, to have him walk through the crowds of people in their village and have the shame and the guilt of feeling, this is the son that ran away from his father and wished his father was dead. This is the one that, that turned his back on his family and all the murmuring and the, the gossiping. The father didn't want the son to have to walk through that to get to him, so he ran to him first and said, I'm going to bring him back with me and let's see who talks about my son in front of me. And he comes and he chases down his son who's far and says, I'm going to walk with him. I'm going to remove the guilt and the shame and the murmuring off of him. I'm going to walk with him. And it says that the father had compassion, ran to him, and he kissed him. And the son tried to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Because what does sin do? It tries to tell you you're worthless even though you have great worth and value. But the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. and Bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you hear a theme there? Of celebration and joy. When the lost have been found, when the dead come back to life. See, the father had been looking, vigilantly looking for his lost son. And it tells us that as he finds his disgraced son, he gives him back his place of authority and honor. And his relationship is restored, gives him his best robe, his signet ring, shoes on his feet, and then they throw a party. See, Jesus in the first two parables is talking to the religious leaders. But in the last parable, now he says, it's, it says he's speaking to his disciples, not the religious leaders. He is speaking to the faithful ones about those who have lost faith. He's speaking to those who are in his family, who have right relationship with him. And he's saying, I want to remind you of your responsibility as those who are in the kingdom of God. And this is where the story shifts, and it helps us now see not only how the father responds to the one that has been lost, but now the responsibility of the older brother to the younger, to the faithful son, to the one that was unfaithful. Because we see in verse 25, the older son, he's in the field, and he draws close to the, ha the house, and he hears music, he hears a party going on. He calls a servant to him, says, what's going on? And the servant says, your brother has come and your father killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother, the faithful one, got angry and he refused to go in. 
So his father comes out and speaks to him. I, I don't know, this, this kind of hits home for some of us who've been faithful, who've been uh, committed to the house of God, have been faithful in prayer and reading, and then one that has been far off living like hell comes back in, and we're like, who do they think they are? They got to jump through all the hoops. They can't be just walking in here and, and having the favor of God on their life. They need to be repentant. I need to see more repentance. I mean, yeah, they may be repentant to God, but I need to see it. Like, they need to come and apologize to me for the way they've been living their life, right? There can be an attitude of pushing away those who are drawing close. The church has done it. We have done it. God forgive us for having attitudes that we are better than those who are lost. See, the older brother had an attitude, a chip on his shoulder, and then the father comes. How many know when, when God shows up, the chips fall off? So the father comes, and he says to his son, look, the, father, the, 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 the son begins to answer the father, for many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you've never even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Some of us can throw pity parties when, when we don't think that God gives us what we deserve, what, we, what we've earned, which is a twisted idea because we deserve death and we deserve hell. Jesus, by his grace, gives us life and eternity with him. So some of us can have this idea, like, well, I, I earned this from you. And this is what the beauty of the, the father, right? So the, 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 the son says, you haven't even given me a, a goat to celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours, you, you hear the frustration, the accusations in his voice. When this son of yours came, you, who had devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill a fat calf for him. You don't, do you know what he's done? And the father said to him, son, you are always with me. That's the reward in itself, isn't it? God would say to you today, those who are followers of him, you're going to always be with me. So don't, don't allow what I'm doing with those that are lost to make a, become an obstacle for you because you're going to be with me. He says, all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's been found. Do you see the, the contrast there between the older brother saying, this son of yours, this, he, I have no connection with him. I don't, I don't even know him. You're, this, this person. And then the father saying, no, it's your brother. There's a connection that he's trying to make here that Jesus is reminding his disciples that you have a connection. The faithful son has a connection with the lost son. You have a responsibility. There is a family connection there. You can't disown somebody who is far from God and say, let them do whatever they want. There is a responsibility there. He's saying, this, th this brother is your brother. You have a connection to those that are lost. And now I have a few points I want you to write down. And the first one is this. We're going to look at God's role. We're going to look at our role as a church. And then we're going to look at my role, my individual role, and what God wants to do with the lost, what God is wanting to do uh, with those who are far from him. And the first one is this. God's role is he's the seeker. God is the one who seeks those who are lost. 
See, God's will, his desire is to seek those who are far from him, to reunite them with him and the family of God. God desires to save those who are perishing. That's why he sent his son, to seek and save the lost. John 3.16 has not changed just because Tim Tebow made it famous, right? God so loved the world, the world before Jesus, the world before the cross, the world before salvation came in the form of Jesus in the flesh. He loved that world. Not a redeemed world, not a cleaned up world, not a purified world, a broken world, a disgusting world, a deprived world, a lost world, a dark world, a world that we would look at and say, no way, God said, I love them. And so he seeks them. And I say them, but y'all, I mean me. Because I was in that place before I found Jesus and Jesus found me. I was a part of that world that was lost and broken and in darkness. And so were you. Hello, so were you. And none of us are innocent. I was talking to Faith last night. She started reading a book, and she said, this is what's profound. I love this. It was reading a story about a mother talking to a daughter who said she didn't have a testimony because she hadn't lived wildly enough. Hello. And we miss what the gospel means. The gospel is not I have to seek God's forgiveness because I've done something bad. No, the gospel is we are already dead, and Jesus came to make us alive. So we can live as perfectly as we think possible, but we're still dead in our sin and trespasses. The gospel is Jesus loved us in the midst of our sin and our death, and he came to bring us life and freedom. That's the gospel. So Jesus comes and seek those who are lost. He is the seeker, and God celebrates when the lost come home. See, these three parables show great rejoicing, celebration when the lost are found. The concern isn't with those who are already in his family because he's always going to be with us. We're always going to be with him and everything that he has, he says, is also ours. But he's searching those who don't know him. Number two, what's our role? Our role is to imitate God in his seeking. Imitate God in his seeking. See, as we see ourselves in God's will or God's desire for the lost, then we begin to seek them as well. As the people of God, we are to participate with him in his will for the world. To the church, we're called to gather. We're called to, uh, to gather the faithful and those who are far from God. And we're, we're called to help people know Jesus. We're called to do this together. Not just the worship leader or the pastor or a lay leader or somebody. No, all of us together have a role. We are all called to gather everyone that we can find and bring them to Jesus. Some of us have that kind of gift of evangelism. We can just walk up to strangers and be like, you need Jesus. And they're like, oh God, I do. <laughs> you know, some of us have those gifts. Not all of us do. So, so we can't all go out and do that. So some of us have to do it in small groups. We come together and we know that Jesus is in our midst because two or three of us are gathered together and there's a promise that this Holy Spirit's going to be with us. And then we say, hey, you want to come over for a barbecue? And then they, people encounter the spirit of the living God and the love that we have between each other. And they're like, how do I have this? And we share Jesus with them. Some of us are like, I, don't, I, I, I can't, but I'll, I'll invite somebody to church and we'll get together and we'll, we'll have fellowship and we'll sing songs and we'll talk about Jesus. And, and then they're going to have a desire to know Jesus. It all works together. God says, I've, de I've designed my people to gather people. There should be something attractive 
in the church that the lost want. See, God places great value on the lost. So we should also place great value on them. And he says, you are my light in dark places. When Jesus was in the earth, the light, John, I talked about this, John 1, 1, the light of Christ, the light came in to the world and the world did not recognize it. The darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. But Jesus then tells to his disciples who he's talking to in this last parable, he tells them, you are the light of the world. Which means that we have responsibility to go to the darkness. We have responsibility to go where there is darkness so that we can shine brightly for Jesus. That means we have responsibility. We have a role of stewardship upon our lives for those who are lost. We have, we have been given something to care for. Part of creation, God has entrusted to our care. And if something you care for is lost, it's your responsibility to find it. It's what I tell my sons when they get all their toys out and they, they scatter everywhere. I said, who did this? First of all, they say, the other one, right? It was Colbin. That's what Griffin says. Colbin says, not me. I said, look, if you got it out, it's your responsibility to put it back. If you lose it, it's your responsibility to find it. I don't know where you put it. you got to find it. And yet I hear the sense of God saying to us, I have entrusted you with people in your care. You have a sphere of influence around your family, your coworkers, and your friends. And you are the light to them in their dark places. Now if they're lost, I'm going to entrust you to find them. Have you looked at it that way before? There is a responsibility upon your life as those who know Jesus to help others know him as well. He has made you a steward of the light of the world. And he has put people around you who are living in darkness. Not to isolate yourself from them, not to turn your back on them, but to shine brightly for them. Because if they're lost, he says, I want you to find them. See, as followers of Jesus, we should follow his example. Jesus involved himself with the lost, so so should we. Last, in this, in this uh, connecting parable, so chapter 15 has these three parables, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. And then right after that, Jesus follows up in chapter 16, verse 1. And just because there's a chapter break doesn't mean Jesus stopped and changed subjects. Jesus tells this really confusing parable about a shrewd manager right after the lost things. And some of us, because we're like, I don't know if that, those things don't go together, we usually just shut it off. It's like, that's a good chapter break because we don't understand that. Right? Jesus tells this really confusing parable about a shrewd manager. In verse, six, in verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, uh, and he also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in all your accounts of your management, for you're no longer to be my manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm no longer strong enough to dig, or I'm, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what I'll do so that when I am removed from management, people will still receive me into their houses. So the manager begins to call in all those who have debts to the master. 
and says, whatever you owe, let's cut it in half. I'm going to gain your favor. I'm going to do whatever I can so that you like me, so that, you, so that you're willing, even after I lose this position, to invite me into your home. I'm going to, I'm going to help you. So he begins to slash all of these bills. Then in verse 8, the master, it says, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for his cunning, for his ability to, to make uh, decisions that would not just affect him in the here and now, but would affect his future. And then Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Who's he talking to? His disciples, the sons of light, the daughters of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Let me explain what this means. Verses 8 and 9 highlight that believers should be more prudent with their resources so that they can invest in things that are eternal. To in in interpret this story rightly, we can't get really hung up on the Rightness or wrongness of the manager. Sometimes it's like, he was dishonest, I don't understand this, he was shrewd, that's a bad thing. We can't get hung up on that, right? The manager had the ability to set the prices for the master's master's goods. That was why he was the manager. He had the ability to make those things. He was just doing it for his own selfish gain prior. But it tells us that the master took delight in the steward who shrewdly put his resources to work Not for his here and now, but for the future. He begins to highlight to us in this story as he's telling about the shrewd manager to his disciples. He's saying, I've made you to be managers, sons of light in this world. And I, I, you have to be shrewd with the resources that you have, your influence, your leverage, your, connect, your connections, your popularity, your talent. Use whatever you can, not so that you can gain fame here and now, but that you can invest it for the eternity of others. When we think of stewarding, sometimes we think of saving or conserving or holding on to, but that's not what stewardship means in this story. It's not about resource management. It's about making the right use of your resources for a larger purpose. Taking what you have, a small amount of what it might be, and figuring out how can I make this grow and expand so that it can reach its full potential. That's what stewardship is in this, in this story. And the big objective of stewardship that Jesus is connecting back to the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son seems to be this. As he's talking to his disciples, I've made you managers in the kingdom of God. And I don't want to hear as the master that you've been misusing the funds that I've given you. You need to be wise and cunning to not just invest in the here and now for yourself, but begin to use whatever resource you have, whatever talent you have, whatever ability you have to secure something greater for the future. The answer begins to point back that the the manager's cunning and wise use of the master's resources to secure and find life after what he's lost is what's most important. See, the stewardship of ourselves and the resources that God has entrusted to us is to serve a greater purpose, to make disciples, to grow the kingdom of God, to invest in the welfare of others, and not just ourselves. Stewardship is not about enriching ourselves as much as it is giving and forgiving in order to secure people's eternity. And so for even those who have wronged you, you could hold on to that 
and choose not to allow forgiveness to be extended or, or, or being willing to reach out a, a hand of grace, you could do that. But are using your resources and your talents and your abilities, does that max those things out? Or does it, in fact, say, what can I do now? Seeing how God views the lost and saying, whatever I have, the ability that I have to reach out to those who are far from God, even those potentially who have, who have uh, turned their backs on me, if I'm willing to forgive and give and reach out, could I get a greater reward from that relationship that I'm getting right now? Because what you're getting right now out of certain relationships is zero. Could there be a shift in the way that you speak to people, treat people, even those who have wronged you? Could there be a shift perhaps in your own heart and in the spirit as you begin to pray for them? And could there be something fruitful that comes out if you're willing to give instead of hold back? Jesus is saying to my disciples, which is us, you have been giving resources, talents, abilities, connections, influence. What are you using those things for? See, in this parable, the manager had every right to manage his master's resources and accounts the way he saw fit. But he was no longer concerned with his immediate security. He began to shift his concern to securing a greater future. Here's the point. Instead of enriching ourselves with earthly goods, we should be stewarding ourselves, giving our gifts, our talents, our treasure, our creativity, our resources with cunning, with wisdom to help secure the future with God for other people. See, people in the world are more cunning to get what they want. I mean, people can do, people are, can, can think of wild things to get what they want. And the things that they're trying to get is fleeting. That's why Jesus says the people of this world use their cunning and they're more cunning and, uh, to get what they want and it's fleeting. But I want my people to use their cunning, their wisdom, their discernment to get something that is greater, that is eternal. And what he's speaking of are lost souls. I want you to use your ability, your wisdom, your cunning to bring people into the kingdom of God. And often we do not do that. Often it's like, they know how I live. They know what I like and what I don't like. They know how I speak. So if they're interested, they can come, they can come to me. If they want relationship, if they want prayer, they can come to me. And Jesus is saying, no, use whatever you've got in your toolkit and get them to me. Whatever it takes. If you make a great uh, pound cake, I don't know. <laughs> Use that to the ability to draw people in. If you're a great host or hostess, bring them in. If you've got a great backyard for, for hanging out with people, invite people over that are lost. Whatever you got. If you've got a nice car, give people rides. If you've got nice clothes, share some. If you, whatever you got to draw people to me, Whatever, use your cunning, use wisdom, be creative. I, the creator made you, and he made you in his image. That means you are also creative. I mean, if you want a snack, but you're trying to hide it, you'll be real creative on how to get that candy bar without anybody knowing. Hello, I know how to speak firsthand. <laughs> be real creative. We can be super creative and cunning to get what we want, and those things are fleeting. God is saying now that you know that you have resources, cunning and ability, talents and skills, you have you have connections. Use them, not for yourself to get ahead, but so that people can come into the family of God. Because God puts priority on the lost, and he says, go looking for them. 
and carry them in on your backs if you have to. I want you to seek them diligently and be committed until you find them because that's the God that we serve who did not quit when we were lost but continued to send people our way to bring us into the family of God. And now he's saying, I have a family in this house that I'm sending out to seek those that are far from me, but I want you to be diligent in seeking and I want you to be committed until they're found because they belong to this family. And I want you to find them. I want you to be diligent because they have tremendous value, tremendous worth. No matter how lost they are, how deep into sin they are, how dark they're living, how twisted their minds might be, they still have great value because I love them, is what the Lord says. And he reminds us to the faithful that we are still connected to those that are lost. He did not bring you into the fold so that you can cut all ties and say, I had no longer have responsibility that those are in darkness. No, he says, you might be the only Christian in your family. That's all I need. I need a one little light to shine in the darkness. Now, I've called you to be responsible. Will you shine brightly or will you hide your light under a basket or a bushel? Will you withdraw from them? Like, I don't want to deal with your mess. Let me just go praise my Jesus. He's saying, while you're praising, before you go to worship the Father, if you have any issue with anybody, go to them first and make it right. So he's saying to some of us, look, I know your family's jacked up. I know it because you were in it too. <laughs> but I brought you out. Come <laughs> on, somebody. But I brought you out to send you back in. You are now God's double agent. You're a spy for the kingdom of God. Now get back in there and be like, hey, I know Jesus, and I want you to know him too. See, God's role, he's the seeker. Our role corporately is to imitate him in his seeking. And your role individually, your responsibility, write this down if you hear nothing else is to invest in what God is interested in. You need to invest in God's interests because those interests pay the best dividends. See, if God causes us to partner with him, he blesses us to bless others, he places responsibility of his creation on our shoulders, I need to be wise and I need to be cunning about what I do with the resources he's given me. If God's will is that all should be saved, and he's called me to be light in the darkness and bring life to those dead places in people's lives, then I need to be about his business. And if I remain in covenant relationship with Jesus, my orientation, my alignment will move me from me to others, especially those that are lost. See, God's heart is for the lost. My heart has to be for the lost as well. And if I'm working about his will, if I'm concerned with his desire, my role is to find my place in what he is doing and do whatever it takes to accomplish it. Whatever I got to do to see God's will done for the lost, I'll do it. And, and the Bible tells us that it is his will, it is his will that none should perish. That none should perish, but all would have everlasting life. So my role is to do whatever it takes to fulfill God's desire.
God's the seeker, so he invites me and he invites you to diligently seek with him and to invest in what he says is most the top priority. So this morning, as I invite the worship team to come back, I'm going to close with a time of prayer. I believe that we're on the verge of an awakening in Madeira and in your family. Some of you have been praying for the lost in your family, lost friends, people who have walked away from the Lord, sons and daughters who don't serve the Lord, some that are bound up in sin and addiction and brokenness. And God's saying, I'm getting ready to break chains off people. I'm getting ready to set the captive free. I'm getting ready to open blind eyes. But you have a role in this. And your role is to diligently seek and put value where it belongs. So this morning, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give the invitation. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the Bible says that you are out of, the, out of the family of God. You don't belong to his family. But today he wants to adopt you and bring you into his family. And this morning, if you don't feel like you have worth or value, perhaps because you've gone to churches and they've made you feel like you had no worth, that is not what the Lord sees you as. That's not how the Lord sees you. He says you have tremendous value and tremendous worth and he wants you to be a part of his family. And he's willing to, he, he's done whatever it does to take, whatever it has to take to get you into the family of God. And you're here today to be a part of his family. So if you want a relationship with Jesus, you want to be brought into the family of God. You want to be moved from death into life found in Jesus. You want to be forgiven of your sin, your life transformed. Now, on count of three, I want you to pray with me. I want you to raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray? On the count of three, I want you to raise your hand and say, I want a relationship with Jesus. One, Jesus loves you. Two, he says you have great value. Three, right now. Would you raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? I want a relationship with Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Would you repeat this prayer after me? Say, Jesus, I turn my life to you. I put my trust in you. Thank you for saving me. Without you, I am dead and trapped in my sin. But because of you, I have life, I have hope, I have freedom. So I accept you now. Be my Lord and Savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again. I love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Thanks for listening to this message. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel to hear past episodes. If you like what